The world, in a way, has democratized. Like with digital, with social media, with AI, you do have the tools to basically accomplish what everyone else that you look up to has. It just still takes incredible amount of hard work. But as long as you have that motivation, you really want to achieve that, of course, you can get there. Our growth as a business would always be limited by the number of office buildings we could open. So anyone who's done anything with physical world, whether it's FMB or real estate or hospitality, knows that it's very capital intensive. Growth is extremely slow. And so that was the reason for us to really look at something that we could take out and we could grow as a platform business. Hi. I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Dan Van Rossum is the founder and CEO of FlexOS, a work tech startup that helps hybrid and remote managers level up their leadership game. The company raised $1 million from investors, including Thu Ventures, Vic Partners, Volpes Ventures, Hustle Fund, Wingmasic Siri of ICED SEA, NWV Fund 2, and Plug and Play Ventures, who previously backed PayPal, Dropbox, Webflow, NerdWallet, and more. Well, hi, Dan. So nice to finally speak with you today. I feel like this is very long overdue. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I think for me, as I said earlier, I really wanted to get into your journey and your story because I think it really caught my attention when you commented before in my post. I, if I remember correctly, I think I talked about how it, I felt so different or some people would always say like you walk like a totally different path. It's so abnormal for not going to university after graduating high school. But then yeah, I think you said how you took it a step further and you actually dropped out of high school and didn't go to university altogether. So I'd love to hear about your childhood. Like where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Mm, okay, interesting. Well, first of all, no one needs to go to school, but I'm sure that people who listen to this podcast are not at uh, primary school age. So uh, we, we, we can say it safely here. The world is developing so fast. I don't think like any university can really prepare you for that. But if you want to go there and spend some money and build a network and have fun, then of course you should still do that and get the most out of it. Enjoy it. I didn't go to university. I dropped out of high school, as you said, Amanda. I grew up in a very, very small town in the Netherlands with more cows than people. I uh, moved around a bunch in the country and eventually found myself going to high school and working probably like a good 30 plus hours a week alongside my school. And I just enjoyed the work a lot more. This is probably a theme that will carry throughout the entire thing, but I enjoyed working a lot. I like being in a professional environment. I like learning things in the real world. And at some point I said, hey, is there any way that I can just stop going to school so I can focus on my work? And technically the answer was no, because I was 15 and in my country, you have to go to school until 16. So actually, no, you cannot do that. But then they said, okay, I have a feeling that you're probably going to be fine anyway. So fine, here's a letter. Here's permission from the government. Okay, you can leave school early. So I... I switched to full-time work and through a couple of like roundabout things, eventually kind of like ended up in startups, even though at that point in time, it was just called a small business. <laughs> I don't think that anyone was really talking about startups in that sense or being a founder. You were just working in a very, very, very small company. <laughs> so that's the beginning. When you dropped out of high school, what did your parents say? Were they supportive? Were they okay with it? Like maybe knowing you, they were not shocked. Definitely don't think that they were shocked, Amanda. And in fact, I think they were probably pretty relieved because they were getting a lot of angry letters from the school about classes I didn't attend and, you know, how annoying I was and how much I was disturbing other people's opportunity to learn, et cetera, et cetera. So I think probably a little bit more relief. But of course, they still had to approve the me leaving school. And yeah, I think that they, similar to what the government eventually ended up saying, kind of saw that, you know, you're already working, you're taking your responsibilities, you seem to be smart enough to make something of yourself. So if you think this is the path, okay, fine, go and do it. And we'll see what happens. So they were 
fine. <laughs> I cannot say that they were like extremely enthusiastic, but it seems like they were fine. <laughs> and what was your first job? Like the first job, I guess, you ever had? My first job ever, ever, ever was with a marketing company sort of it was it was very weird okay so in the u.s there is this like really expensive big kind of like vacuum machine cleaning machine called kirby and it cost at that point in time and let's remember that when i was 15 that's about 25 years ago so at that point in time that machine was like two thousand dollars or something like that like just like insane you would never buy that for your home but they had thought for some reason that they can sell this just to random consumers. And their distribution model was basically that they would get leads to call up and then do like a sales pitch in people's homes. So it was like extremely weird. This is basically sales development <laughs> at like a really early stage. So the task that I had, again, as a probably I was like 14 at that time, maybe even younger, was to go door to door to people and tell them that I was doing a survey about households and about cleaning. And that if they would answer a few short questions that they could actually be randomly selected to win a deep cleaning at home. And the whole, basically the whole trick was that every single person obviously was quote unquote selected and everyone got the quote unquote deep cleaning winning the deep cleaning while you're but it was just the a still pitch <laughs> exactly <see>. exactly <laughs> so so that was my task and so yeah my, my very first job was going door to door and i started in my own neighborhood and then i had asked everyone in my own neighborhood so i would go to other neighborhoods eventually i had to go to a different city to go door to door but uh, yeah i would go door to door and i would ring the doorbell and say by any chance, and I would go like in the daytime during the week, right? <laughs> By any chance, are you the one responsible for cleaning the home? And usually the answer was yes. And then I would take the survey and the survey was like four questions. And then it was mostly about what is your phone number? This is obviously before email. So what is your phone number? And then they would get the call of like, congratulations, you you will not believe your luck, but you are the winner of this. Uh, or you also cleaning. the one calling them that they were they were winning it. Yeah. Different team, different team. Okay, okay. But uh, that was my my role was solely going door to door and doing the survey. And uh, I remember at that time, I was getting the local equivalent of like a dollar for every phone number that I collected. So th that was my job. So very performance driven. <laughs> okay, very interesting. And how did you even find out about the job opportunity? Because <laughs> there was no. Okay, Amanda. Internet. So there, there, I have to. <laughs> have to refer to something I said before, which is that this is 25 years ago. So I'm not exactly sure how that came about. But yeah, the, the, they found me somehow or I found them somehow. Okay. And then was that the job that made you not want to go to school anymore? Or did it take some other jobs for you to feel like you didn't want to go to school anymore? That would have been like a really shocking story of like going door to door basically trying to sell vacuum cleaners. If that was my story of why I wanted to drop out of school. Now, the job that made me drop out, the one that I was doing besides school already, was actually as a help desk employee, like call center employee for an internet provider. So my job at that point in time was mostly just like to pick up the phone and help people with like resolve technical issues, which usually sounds something like, Oh, you cannot use the internet right now. Have you tried resetting your computer? Have you tried resetting your router? Can you do that first and then call us back and then hoping that a colleague had to take that call? So that was what I was doing at that time. And I really liked it because at that point, again, it wasn't that mainstream for people to have home internet. It wasn't that mainstream for people to have broadband home internet, which is what I was working on. And it was a bit technical in nature and you would get to speak to people and kind of hear about their challenges and... I really liked doing that job and I was learning a lot on the technical side, on the digital side. So yeah, that was the job that eventually I said, oh, I can do this full time. But I quickly switched from there. I had a colleague who had this idea of like, hey, if people have internet, you know, what things could change, right? So we already maybe reading news on the internet to some degree. We were doing like small things on the internet, but he had this idea that maybe in the future people could also order food through the internet. 
And so he said, like, would you want to join and try and again, at that point, we didn't really know the word startup or founders or whatever. He said, do you want to join and build a website together? That was basically like how we talked about starting a business. So yeah, starting a small business and building a website together. And we actually went on that path and we ended up building a website again, 25 years ago, very different time where people could kind of browse the menus of local pizza places and local shawarma places and local restaurants and order food online. And again, obviously, this was all before all the technology that we have today, where you would maybe have like a tablet in a kitchen where you get the orders in real time. No, no, no. When you ordered something on our website, it would be sent as an email to an email to fax converter. And then basically a fax would come out in the restaurant. So actually a piece of paper with the order and the order details. It's a very technical ordeal like back then compared to now. It was a crazy, crazy, again, talking about bad timing, that was definitely like the mother of bad timing because, you know, like then they would get that, the restaurant would get that fax and they would see the order details and then they would call up the person and says, is it true that you actually ordered this and that? And then they will prepare the order, deliver it, collect cash upon delivery, obviously, because there was no internet banking or mobile payments or anything like that. Very, very different worlds. And, and obviously the idea didn't really you know, go as big as we would have wanted it to, even though eventually one of the largest global success stories of uh, food delivery is coming from the Netherlands. But yeah, I think they started about 10 years later and that was a good a good decision. And like when you were doing that, I can imagine that maybe all the information was placed uh, manually as well, right? Now you can automatically upload things. But back then, I'm sure you maybe typed in every menu item. I don't know. If I relive too many stories from my past work experience, thinking about how easy it would have been nowadays with digital and AI and all that, I really curse myself for again for picking that time. Yeah, 100% of men, I was literally, I would have a paper printout of a menu, like a delivery menu of a Chinese place or a pizza place. And I would have to like enter that manually into a website and then, you know, make the information accessible. Yeah, it was, it was a nightmare. But anywho, we didn't know differently, right? Like that was at that time, yeah, that, that was, was like way. so modern. The and it was so, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No choice. What was the most popular restaurant back then from your platform? <laughs> I don't know. Too, too long ago. Too long ago. But I can safely ago. say that it Nothing never... Nothing sticks out. Right, right, right. No, I can safely say it never hit any kind of skill where we would have known like fully. Probably we were the ones mostly using it. So in that case, I would say probably pizza. That's why I can say like pizza place, pizza place, just ordering pizza. Yeah. <laughs> so that was your first business at 15. And then after that, I think you started working in another company before joining Ogilvy, right? Correct. Correct. Yes. So I joined another startup. I had built some websites, some project that got into the, into the national news that got a lot of press, got a lot of PR. And I was approached by a company that said like, hey, if, if you have that, that skill set, if you can do that kind of work, why don't you come work for us? And they offered me a job and I took that job, which, you know, again, just for context was really great because I didn't have a diploma. I didn't have any prospects other than being on the help desk. So, <laughs> so getting a real job offer with a real salary in a real office was obviously just really fantastic. Like, I'm still very grateful for that opportunity to this day. So I stayed with them for quite a few years and we were building kind of like uh, what you would now call, again, like all those terms weren't uh, known then or maybe didn't exist then, what you would now call maybe like an incubator. So we were developing a lot of different concepts that were popular in other markets, trying to build some kind of like proof of concept and then try to sell it to a company to then manage it from there on out. So we worked on like the local version of about.com. We worked on the local version of Netflix. So I think one of my jobs at that point was actually entering all the details of different movies we had in our database and actually fulfilling envelopes full of DVDs and bringing them to the post office. Like a lot of like random jobs. I'm glad you said DVDs. I was like, I wonder if it's still taped back then. <laughs> No, we, no, 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 I don't think we would have started a business if we had to pack and send VHSs, which I think is similar to Netflix. I think that kind of like the DVD was obviously like a good accelerant for it. this is something you can ship through the mail at not too high of a cost and, you know, deliver the value. So 
we did a bunch of those concepts and eventually I joined Ogilvy, as you said, and then I was with Ogilvy for almost 10 years, long time. I think what's interesting is like the the job that you said, like kickstarted everything. Like maybe if not for that job, it would have been a totally different path for you, would you say? I mean, this is the truth with everything in life, right? Like nothing can happen without something before that happening and then something before that happening. So we could map out, you know, a million versions of our life depending on what would have happened. Yeah, it's incredible to think about. And like, what did you enjoy so much about that job to say for, I think, seven years, eight years, the first one? What made it like hard to leave? Or did you really just enjoy it that much? I think two sides of it. I think one is that I really liked working with that team and, you know, they gave me the opportunity and there was always something new to learn because we were constantly doing different concepts, different ideas. And again, I was like a young nerd. I love digital. I love websites. You know, I loved refreshing the page to see if the stat counter had gone up, which is like uh, Google Analytics a long time ago. You know, that was my world. Like I love doing it. I think that was one side of it. And then the other side of it is that you know, I didn't know that I could do more, right? So at that point in time, I was just like a very insecure young person who was and really felt like a dropout. And even though maybe I would have achieved that job, like that didn't just mean that I could just get anything else. So also maybe a little bit sort of like a victim to the situation and not really realizing that maybe I could do more. And at some point, I just realized that I still felt again, like very insecure, very kind of inferior to other people who did the traditional path of going to school, going to university, getting a real good job. And I kind of felt that I had to prove my, you know, my legitimacy by finding a job that those kind of people could have found. And so that's when I started applying for jobs really with the primary, not really focused on like, what kind of work do I want to do? Or what kind of industry do I want to be in? but just something that would prove that I can have a quote unquote normal job. And so when I had the interview with Ogilvy and eventually was hired by Ogilvy, I was like, that's a real company, a respectable company. Yeah. Like anyone who would have graduated from university probably would get this job offer too. So it shows I'm on their level or better maybe. Exactly. Exactly. And, and now obviously, you know, I look back at it and say like, you had so many skills, you had so many abilities and people in a similar situation, you really don't have to doubt yourself so much. But I think that's also what comes with being in early twenties and going through kind of like those kind of things. But anyway, you know, like I was looking for something and then I found that in Ogilvy and I found a digital role within Ogilvy and I could kind of play on, you know, the creative side that I really enjoyed, the digital side I really enjoyed. And again, I was in this big professional company with many employees and an even bigger real office. And in this case, like even an international network. So I really, I really enjoyed the transition. It was an industry I didn't know anything about. Like I didn't know what was advertising. I didn't know what was media other than as a consumer, what I would have seen. Uh, So it was like totally new world for me, but very, very interesting. And I think what was interesting as well was that you got to move around, right? Like beyond just Europe too. Yeah, that's why I kind of laugh when I say like, I worked there for almost... 10 years because the the truth is that I really just worked five jobs in succession, but it just happens to be for the same company. And it just kind of goes back to, I'm just like very restless by nature. So it was very hard for me to do one thing, to sit still, to, you know, like be patient. Although I've learned that now over time as I've aged, but I was always like looking for, okay, what can I do next? What can I do next? And in Ogilvy, I had that opportunity Not so much that like they let me move around. It's like, oh, where do you want to go next? Because, you know, for them, I was still a very junior employee. But I just had the luck that when I was at Ogilvy in Amsterdam, about one year into my role there, maybe one and a half years, there was a new CEO that came into the company. And the new CEO said, okay, if I'm going to have to kind of deliver the next chapter of what Ogilvy is... And again, for people who don't know it, because, you know, sometimes you get so, you know, kind of like brainwashed by the world that you're in, you know, it's a pretty big marketing agency, probably top five in the world. I'm sure they have like tens or hundreds of thousands of people. I have no idea, but, you know, it's a big skill company. It's a big name in the industry with some significance. They work on like the biggest brands in the world. 
And so when this new CEO came in and he had to kind of make his mark and decide what Ogilvy is going to be in the future, he said, well, the future has to be about what the youth will bring to it, right? So he did this like really big global talent competition where he said anyone at any Ogilvy office in the world can write an essay about what they think the future of not only our agency should be, but the future of advertising and the future of everything. And so we could all write these essays and we could submit them. And so I wrote one and I submitted one. And then eventually out of like all those people, I think like uh, 16,000 people or something uh, was chosen through a couple of rounds and interviews and whatever. But uh, let's get to the end of the story was chosen to go to like a big global conference where like the 200 most senior people from Ogilvy were gathering to discuss this new chapter that the new CEO would uh, bring in. And we could basically present our point of view about what the future would look like or should look like or how we could make Ogilvy better. And, you know, the people there, they entertained our thoughts. They were, I'm sure they were super amused what all these young kids were saying. But it was like a really cool group of like 12 young people from all over the world who were presenting their point of view. And it was really the first time that I saw how big the company was, right? If you can do a conference with your 200 most senior people, like that's, you know, that's pretty huge. And, you know, I got to talking to all these people from different parts of the world. And I just got like really excited about this idea of, oh, maybe I can work in another country. Like I had never thought about that, right? Like a couple of years ago, I didn't even think I was worthy enough to work a real job. But now I was talking to like the big shots in you know, Ogilvy, Chicago, Ogilvy, Buenos Aires, Ogilvy, China. So I really had this idea of like, man, it would be so cool to go and work in one of those offices and basically be somewhere else than my own little small country. And it ended up happening. So it was good. How did you get the opportunities to move around? Was it with every different position or every different function? Yeah, I mean, the first one was really just me kind of setting my goal and saying, you know, here's something I want and how do I make it happen? I interviewed with basically anyone that I could find either directly or through other people in my network. This is before LinkedIn, so we couldn't use LinkedIn. Yes, how, how to did you find do, those how people. How did you do it then? Old school, old school, Amanda, you know, you would, you would know someone at a conference oh, and okay. say, oh, if I were to get a job at the agency in, in New York, as the example is where I landed, you know, New York, that's their headquarters. They have about 2000 people there. If I want to work there, like who would be good people to speak to? And so I, ju I just got some names and I got some email addresses and then I would just reach out and say, you know, I have this, you know, crazy idea. I want to explore the network. I want to work in the New York office. And I think maybe I can deliver something for your team. But then I also realized that just like talking to people on email, it's not, not like super effective. So I just booked a trip to New York and I basically just kind of went there on just a tourist visa and just booked a, a hostel because I had no money. So I booked a hostel. I stayed at the YMCA in uh, Upper West Side in New York. And it was kind of near the Ogilvy office. And I just kind of emailed people. I think I went there with one kind of soft commitment of someone who wanted to talk to me. But mostly I just emailed people. I said, look, I'm in New York this week. Would you have time for a coffee, for a lunch? And it's easier to go to the office? Yeah. I mean, this is all, again, like this is like a long time ago, right? So. Oh, interesting. You would meet them at the office. You'd meet them outside of the office. So they're from Ogilvy, but you're not meeting them in the New York office. You're meeting them in like other places in New York. I mean, it was so, it was such a different time because we didn't have Zoom. We didn't have video conferencing. You couldn't have like an online meeting with someone. So I was just kind of like, okay, I guess I have to bring myself there. So I was there. I was emailing people and saying like, Hey, can we meet? And I ended up getting a couple of meetings. And then actually it was kind of like a second or third order of like meeting someone who introduced me to someone who introduced me to someone. And then finally I met someone who hired me. So while you're there for an entire week, you go through that chain of the someone who knows that other someone who knows that other someone who happens to be the right someone. So like Monday, you meet this person, then the, I guess, Friday, you hit the right person, finally. Actually, I think it may have been that I met that person when I came back a second time, sort of like as a, I've met some people and we were talking and then, and then eventually met someone and you know, they gave me a job offer. And then I started working there and kind of like all the other moves were very similar in that 
it's not like, again, raising your hand and someone says like, oh, why don't we move you to another place, which maybe is more typical in consulting or some other thing. It's really kind of just like, again, setting the goal, figuring out how to get to that goal and then doing and then putting the work in. And even though you're in a network and you have the relationships, you're always basically just applying to a new role with people who don't know you, with people who you know, haven't heard of you. And you can, of course, then tell the story of like, I'm already working at the company, but in a different location. But, you know, when you go to a different country or even like a different major city in the US, you really are talking to them as if you were like a totally new person. You're totally like unknown applicants, but you may have someone as a reference. So hopefully that helps. But yeah, it's a very similar process. Just, you know, if you want something, you need to work hard and make sure that you get it. Now I get why you said it's like five jobs over nine years. It's not internal transfers or anything internally related. It's you sort of trying to apply to all the different offices. <laughs> yeah. And and the move from Chicago to Asia, from US to Asia was basically that example where I had kind of said that, you know, I want to move to Asia. I had done a trip with the first startup to China. And I was like, whoa, this is like so different than anything I've ever experienced. And we just talked a bit before the podcast that sometimes like the differences have to be so vast for you to totally feel that you're in a different world and really feel that the experience is, is worthwhile. All right. And, you know, I had that sort of still in the back of my mind of like, yeah, I really love this US experience. I really love working in uh, New York. I really love working in Chicago, but eventually I would still love to move to Asia. So I kind of booked a trip and I visited five different cities and basically in those cities, again, just approach people of like, could I have a talk? Could I have an interview? And I met people in all the five cities. Although ironically, the eventual job offer was from Singapore, which I never visited during that trip, but I made enough connections that I eventually got introduced to someone in Singapore who said, okay, yes, we could be interested. And how did you end up leaving Agobi and staying in Vietnam? really bringing your life and settling in to Vietnam? So the move to Vietnam was still through Ogovi. I was working in Singapore and pretty quickly after moving to Singapore, I kind of felt like this may not be the right fit for me. I just think I was at like a different life stage. Now I would actually love to live in Singapore because it's very safe and very organized. And, you know, I don't need anything anymore. Like I don't want to go out. I just want to stay at home and do work. So I think that like when I landed at Singapore at that point in time, you know, I was looking for more excitement, more liveliness, more interesting places to go out, more people to meet, et cetera. So because I, at that point I had a regional role. So actually every one or two weeks I would travel to Manila or travel to Ho Chi Minh city or to Bangkok or to like many places in the region. And I kind of really like coming into quote unquote, the real Asia. So whenever I would travel to one of the other cities, I kind of felt like, oh shit, like this is what I meant when I wanted to move to Asia. It's so Not different. Singapore. <laughs> the Singapore is like, you know, it's like Western Asia, right? It's like, like Asia for beginners, as people call it. I know you just did a trip there. So at that point in time, I felt more attracted to living in one of those places. And so I ended up relocating to Ho Chi Minh City, to Vietnam. And to be honest, Amanda, that was kind of a one and a half, two year plan. I will go to Vietnam. I will learn this new market. I will meet a lot of cool people. I will do interesting work and then on to the next one, right? But now, you know, eight years later, <laughs> I'm still here. So clearly something happened. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly what something happened. happened. What made you stay put and also end up, make you end up leaving your Gilby? Well, the biggest reason obviously is that I met my wife and eventually had a baby and you know, became truly local residents. And that's the reason why we're still in Vietnam. We obviously could live like elsewhere, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons for us to stay here. And the reason to leave Ogilvy, actually, I started something on the side, kind of a side hustle, but with no intention to make money with it. So I don't know what you would call that a side non-hustle, but I was doing, I was doing like something on the side and, and it really came from, I just had worked in, in advertising for so long. And especially when you work in strategy and advertising, I can explain the job very simply, which is you do research about people and you discover something about people that helps you sell more of something. 
right? And that can be, you know, some of my clients were like a big bank or maybe, you know, someone like Coca-Cola or I worked for Huggies, I worked for Kotex, right? Like a lot of consumer brands, financial services, like web services, but you're always trying to sell something and you're basically really using what you're learning about the people that you're talking to, to sell them that thing. But I was a lot more interested in what those people had to say beyond what I could use in selling them something. And in particular, in those two years that I was doing it in Vietnam, I just heard a lot of really interesting things around, especially from late teens and early 20s. I just heard a lot of really interesting things around how they felt that there was a gap between the world that they lived in and the person that they felt that they were versus how other people perceive them, especially parents and community. And maybe this is like absolutely nothing new for you to hear. But for me, that was like really, really insightful, really eye-opening. And I just kept hearing these stories of, you know, when I go into work, I'm a young, modern person. I consume young, modern people, media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at that point in time, the pre-TikTok area, you know, and then I go into work and I work digitally and I work in a modern company. But then when I come home, you know, my parents are still like, oh, you're 24, you're 25. Like, why haven't you found a husband yet? Why aren't you married yet? Why don't you have a baby yet? Like, there's like so much pressure on people to still live up to kind of the traditions and the values of Vietnam. And that especially happened around Tet, which is kind of like our Lunar New Year, where you would travel back to your hometown and your whole village would basically accost you. Oh, yeah. And then all your relatives are there asking you every single question on the planet yeah, yeah your relatives your neighbors your town elders everyone would have that same kind of question of they don't get your world like they don't know this new modern world that's out there when you work and live in the big cities and i was like there's something so inherently interesting because i felt that i took a really long journey to figuring out what i truly wanted to do and what made me truly happy and I could just see people struggling with that kind of identity crisis and the what I would love to do versus what people expect of me. And so I decided to do something with that idea. And again, terrible business sense, but I decided to do it as a paper magazine, which, you know, at that point in time probably wasn't the best idea. But I, I had this inspiration from there are these beautiful indie magazines like uh, Kinfolk or Serial. And they really focused on slow living and the things that truly matter in life. And they would package it as like a, a magazine that, you know, you would want to put your cell phone away and you just want to take a moment and drink a cup of tea and read the magazine and consume the stories. And, you know, I had this like idea of like, we should do something like that. But in Vietnam for again, a generation that's... And in Vietnamese, I guess. And we did it in Vietnamese. Yeah, I was editor-in-chief for a Vietnamese magazine, which may be one of the many reasons why it didn't work out. But, you know, that was kind of like my idea, right? Like, how can you bring the stories to people of inspiration, of reflection? And so it was a mix of, you know, how can you live, you know, more holistically? How can you balance your work and life better? But a lot of stories mostly around... What have other people done? The people that you look up to and how did they get to that point, right? So how did that person become an entrepreneur? If there is like a famous person running a local chain of coffee shops, like how did they get to that path? How did they accomplish their dream? Because I think a lot of us, we're always looking up to people and think, oh, they have it so easy or they've accomplished something so amazing. But we always think a little bit that they were lucky or that it came through happenstance, or that it came through opportunities that were given to them. But again, most of the time, it's just someone who set out to accomplish a goal, to fulfill a dream that they have, and worked really, really, really hard to get there. And this is the same for you know, online celebrities and KOLs and influencers, which was like a really big topic at that point in time, because it just started coming up in Vietnam. Yeah, even them, you know, it looked really glamorous from the outside, but they would be waking up in a sweat every morning thinking about what am I going to post today? What am I going to put on Instagram today? How am I going to engage my audience today? So we just wanted to show that, you know, all of those people that are living their quote unquote dream life, it came through hard work and dedication and 
here's the path for you. Here's how you can do it. So that was really the starting point for that. And it had many other iterations, but uh, yeah. I think it's super interesting because I feel like that's a really common sentiment that even I saw with uh, the audience we had in Backstreet. Like part of the reason this podcast exists is because people said that they really like hearing the personal stories of, let's say, people like you because they don't understand how you got to where you are now. And for people you know, looking from the outside, they feel like they're so different and that they could never be like you or get to some place like you. But then once they get to hear your experience and your story like this, then they find it like they sort of feel some kind of hope, like, oh, maybe I can be something similar to Dan or something like that. It seems very unattainable. And I think also like our modern society very much sets us up for you know, kind of adoring from a distance or observing people and saying like, oh, I want to be like them. But I'm not like them or I cannot be like them. Right, exactly, exactly. And and that's, I think, the main misconception. That's the myth that we have to bust, which is really that whatever you see out there, unless it's, you know, you want to be, you, you see basketball players and, you know, you're in your 40s, yeah, probably it's not going to happen. But almost everything else the world in a way has democratized, right? Like with digital, with social media, with AI, you do have the tools to basically accomplish what everyone else that you look up to has. It just still takes incredible amount of hard work. But as long as you have that motivation, you really want to achieve it, of course you can get there. Um, so I think that's really what we wanted to show. And then how did you get there? Like from there, like working at a big company, building your side hustle that's not really profitable. So it's like side hustle, nonprofit, I guess, <laughs> to actually becoming an entrepreneur that actually has to make money this time. And now you're not just an entrepreneur of one company, you have two. Yeah, I really should have, Amanda, that's a great point. I really should have set it up as a nonprofit. Then it would have been a lot easier. It's just saying like, okay, this is a nonprofit and we're going to help people. Side hustle, and we're gonna... nonprofit. <laughs> that's a, that would have, we could have gotten a donation. We could travel back in time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But anywho, just like what we said earlier, right? Like everything that happens today is obviously based on everything that has happened in the past. So I probably just had to go through that to learn enough to go to something else and then eventually end up here. So well, first of all, maybe similar to something I said earlier that while I was working on my company or was working on my magazine, because again, I didn't really think about it in the terms of like a startup or, or company that much. But while I was working on that, you know, I just realized that I just enjoyed those hours so much more than the hours at work. And so at some point, I just made like a very clear plan of I want to switch out of the full time job and I want to just do this full time in order to do that, I need to save up some cash. So I basically made a plan for how long do I have to remain working while really decreasing my burn, basically. So I sort of made a personal runway plan where I looked at, you know, like how much money can I save to last me at least a year running this company, including all the costs that I would have to run the company. I worked that amount of time and then I basically put in my notice and I left. Then I started focusing just on my company. And then again, like many things happen in between, but eventually I ran into someone who looked at my company slash nonprofit slash <laughs> passion project and said, you know what? We have a real business. No, he didn't say it like that, but he said, you know, we have a business and I do think that there is actually some opportunity to do a little bit of what you're doing, but bring it within a context of a product that people are already paying for. And that was a network of co-working spaces in Vietnam where the CEO at that time, Jonah Levy, basically had this idea that the place that we go to work can be so much more than just an office where we sit behind a desk and do the work that the boss tells us to do. It can be a place where, again, you develop yourself as a person, as a professional. And if we can play a role within that, then maybe we can deliver something much bigger than just the office. And therefore, we can have a really great competitive proposition. But more importantly, we can actually do important work, right? Because I don't think anyone gets excited or is intrinsically motivated about selling office space. But if you can sell you know, personal development, if you can sell professional development, then maybe there's something there. And after a lot of talk, I think this process was at least a year, we eventually decided to basically merge that and bring that kind of approach of really focusing on the individual people, in this case, in the offices, 
and what are their hopes and dreams and how can we play a role in some way to get them to where they want to be. And that's how I ended up with my role. Originally, kind of as a head of product, we called it Chief Experience Officer, Workplace Experience Focused, Employee Experience Focused. And eventually I took over as, uh, as CEO. And from that, we spun out another company that I am now the CEO of. Oh, so that's where FlexOS started, like directly. From yes. It. So it's yes, technically yes, yes, yes. an entity of it. How does that work? No, we did set it up as a completely separate company with separate shareholders, separate board members, and we fundraised for it separately. But it came originally out of that idea of a lot of the learnings that we had gained through delivering it within our offices. And we basically said, how can we take some of these learnings around what makes it attractive for people to come in? What builds great teams? What builds great company cultures? How can we take sort of like the tech and the content? How can we take that out of the physical office and, and basically offer that to any company in the world? Because we knew that our growth as a business would always be limited by the number of office buildings we could open. So anyone who's done anything with physical world, whether it's FMB or real estate or hospitality knows that you know, it's very capital intensive. Growth is extremely slow. And so that was the reason for us to really look at something that we could take out and we could grow as a, as a platform business. And that's what we ended up doing last year. I feel like the progression of your career is very interesting. So as I said earlier, like the nonprofit fast side hustle, passion project of being a CEO of a company. Now you're a founder and CEO of a company that doesn't just have to make money, but you also had to fundraise. <laughs> Just escalating difficulty. Yeah, you know, but if if there's no challenge, what's the point, right? So we have to stay sharp. We have to stay challenged. We have to keep running into obstacles. And, you know, every time you solve one problem, yeah, you need to create a you new problem for yourself one. too. <laughs> right, that's, that's right. That's right. What is it like after, I think, almost two years now of running the business as a founder? I'm at a good place now, but it's been a very tough time, especially at the time where we were starting this while I was still a CEO in the other company. When we were going through COVID, we were going through lockdowns, which is a very, very, very bad time when you're in the office industry, trying to sell office space <laughs> when everyone is locked up at home is not a good business. So we had to deal with a lot of difficulties, very difficult to manage the team. And again, this wasn't just on the business side. It was mostly on the personal side where, you know, we had team members that lived in certain neighborhoods where the army was supplying the food, where people could not even leave the apartment itself, had no outlook into what would happen again. Just a very, very difficult time. So managing that and basically getting the whole team through that was very painful. Then fundraising is, I'm sure you've talked to enough people to know that fundraising is also extremely painful, but at least it was a self-inflicted pain. So, you know, you could sort of like say that, you know, there, there's something to be said about like that part of the journey that, yeah, it was painful, but of course it was towards a goal and it was, you know, hard work towards something that we wanted to achieve. And then the, the kind of like the starting months really of the post fundraising of having the money of setting up the team of building out the first real prototype, getting it into market, discovering, you know, to be honest, I kind of thought that I knew everything because I had been working for, you know, 35 plus years. And I had seen everything from the smallest companies to big enterprise and work with so many companies and so many different sizes of team that I work with or that I managed. I had observed obviously a lot of startups that I had run kind of a startup, but yeah, nothing could have prepared me for what would happen in the real early days of a startup when you really have to, again, deploy that capital and you have to do it in a way that drives returns. So I should have been prepared more, but I really kind of experienced in that moment, like how difficult it really is. And I found good communities. I found good support and over time learned how to do it, but it was very, very difficult. But as I said, I'm in a good place now. It just took a lot of pain to get to this point in time. And then of course you realize that when you now read back all the books and all the famous articles that are being shared about the journey, now you fully understand it. And this is just one thing that is a persistent theme in my life. And I think for many people as well, is that you can read all the books that you want. You can gather all the knowledge that's out there. 
there's something about it with human beings that you just have to go through the experience yourself. You have to learn it first-handed before it truly connects with you, before it truly makes sense. So I think that's where, you know, then you read it again. Okay, now I get it. Okay, now the words truly resonate. Now I really know what they mean. Okay, so we had to go through it. And I guess like looking back, I know you can't really turn back and give yourself the advice to help you. But if you could, what's like one piece of advice that you would give yourself when you were starting at least like the West? So one really big piece of advice that, again, it's so cliche and anyone hearing it who needs to hear it, but is not ready to hear it, it will still kind of like go one in ear, one ear out, is to actually find something that you're passionate about. Because there are going to be so many hard times, no matter how great it looks, if you can fundraise and when you fundraise and, you know, you think you have the world at your feet, but the startup journey is so painful and so long and so challenging. You need to be working on something that you truly enjoy and that you would do even if you wouldn't get paid for it, even if there wasn't, you know, an immediate market for it, because you need to fight through all those battles to eventually get to where you want to be. And of course, there are so many stories out there. Again, there are so many great pieces of inspiration and insight about this. So many founders who tell that story, Spotify, Airbnb, all these guys. But, you know, sometimes you just have to go through it. But yeah, if I could go back or if I could retroactively tell myself one thing, it would just be to not be too blinded by all the things that, you know, you can do because there's always so many opportunities out there. There's so many ways to make money or to look good towards an investor. But at the end of the day, you really do need to do something that you you feel personally motivated to keep doing for the rest of your life because with that energy you can then withstand everything and that is really the main thing that you know now where i'm sitting today i would advise myself that's a really great point i think sometimes people actually ask like how do i know what kind of startup to build do i have to be like in love with let's say the education space do i have to be in love with the payment space for some people, they might even answer it's not always about the industry, right? It might be about the type of work you need to do. So like for you, Dan, what would you say is like what you love about the work you do? Like what aspects of it are you passionate about? Is it the industry? Is it something else? Yeah. So on what you mentioned about those kind of questions that people are asking, I think the really big thing that we should ask those people is like, why do you want to start a startup? Because if you don't have something that's eating you up, that's keeping you up at night, that you feel like is totally wrong with the world, then why start a company, right? If you have to find a reason or an idea, then maybe that's not your right move anyway. And this is something that's, you know, over the past 10 years, I've been repeating, you know, ad nauseum, like, Everyone who knows me will, will have heard this at, at one point in time, which is that you have to have the right incentives for yourself. Like you have to understand what will truly matter to you, what is truly a win for you. And you have to build towards that. And we are just really bad at knowing what's good for us. So Lori Santos, who is a professor at Yale, she launched this course a few years ago, which ended up becoming the most popular course at Yale, having the most students register for it. And it's still sold out every year that they launch it again, which is on the science of happiness. And one of the things that she mentions really early on in the course is that we just have this really bad habit of thinking that certain things are going to make us happy. Like we see all the glamorous stories of the startup scene and founders, and we're like, I want to be a founder. Or we hear success stories about fundraising. Now I'm going to search for an idea. <laughs> right? But it actually didn't come from us. We see something externally and we think like, oh, if I would just have that, I would be so happy. Right? Like when I was like really yearning for having a legitimate job, right? I was like, oh, then I will feel better about myself. Of course, the insecurities I had didn't come just from that, right? That was just like a manifestation of it. So she basically talks in that course about how we typically miss want, like we want things that we shouldn't be wanting. And we realize when we then achieve that thing or when we get that thing, that was never the thing that we needed in the first place. It was never the thing, right? And so she mentions great examples of, you know, studies where, where they measured the happiness of lottery winners, right? Where 
People are extremely happy when they win the lottery because you keep buying lottery tickets sometimes for 30 or 40 years. And then finally you win the lottery and then they do post measurements and they show that six months after winning the lottery, your happiness levels are just as high or just as low as everyone around you because you adapt to that new reality. And people who didn't win the lottery are just as happy, right? So we're typically looking at things and we think that, oh, if I can just have that, if I can just achieve that, then I will be happy. And I think that drives some of that, you know, you're hearing all these great stories about startups and you see how dynamic the scene is and you only hear about the positive things. You only see the success stories and you hear about all the fundraisers and, and you see all the cool interviews that they're doing. And then you're like, oh, I want that. All I need is an idea. Okay, let's stop there and really understand for yourself, why do you want to go on this path? And if you don't have a reason why you want to be an entrepreneur in the first place, or why you want to address a particular challenge, then probably it's not the right path. Probably you can still achieve some of the things that you want, but you can do it through a different path. For me, again, now looking back, the thing that I've been doing, especially like since I started my own company from Ogilvy, so maybe about like five, six years ago, I've really been focused on that particular area, which is the overlapping of, I'm an ex-consultant, so I think in Venn diagram still, the overlapping of happiness, like the personal pursuit of happiness and work. And the idea that work, which I'm sure you would agree to, but many people, right, would not agree to, that the idea that work can be something that's extremely fulfilling. It can be something that really helps you in your quest to develop a meaningful life. It can be something that makes you happy. But I think for most people, the reality is that work is bearable or maybe work sucks and it's the thing that you do to then do the things that you want to do. But I've really seen from a lot of research, from a lot of case studies, from a lot of people that I've spoken to that if you find that thing that truly motivates you, and again, that doesn't have to be entrepreneurial, that can be within a company, that can be NGO, that can be in a lot of different form factors, you can get a lot out of work and it can be extremely meaningful and extremely rewarding. But again, it has to start with the right incentives. So that for me, like getting people to realize that, you know, work can deliver happiness and that it can be a way to be happy and to be content in life and how to get there. That's always been my big thing. And now I've been able to put that much more into the work that I do and really focus on that part of work and, you know, on the mission of creating happier employees. And I think just to close the conversation, I want to ask you a question. I ask every single person who comes on the podcast and that is outside of work. What's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? And the timeline is whenever it's going to be something achieved in five days, five years, 50 years, or a hundred years, if we live until then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really would say that primarily I've really achieved everything that I want to achieve. And maybe more importantly, I've learned that again, achieving is not important. The act of achieving is important because we stay motivated and it renews our energy for our next challenge. But I don't have anything externally anymore that I look to and say, oh, I wish I could get that. I wish I could get that position or that achievement, or I wish I could, my startup could hit that or do that. I am extremely content living the life that I live and doing what I do. So if it's this from now on out, I will be very happy. If there is a scenario where I could disconnect from the world and not have to be on social media anymore, live in the mountains, wake up, drink a cup of coffee and write books, then that may be something that I would be quite happy with. But again, I'm extremely happy with my life right now. I have an amazing wife. I have an amazing son. Very enjoy the work that I'm doing. I have a really great team that we're doing the work with. I think we have a lot of really great opportunities ahead of us. So I'm already extremely content. So I don't really have anything anymore besides maybe the desire to sometimes not have to be on LinkedIn anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. <laughs> Ironic, right? Because that's how this interview started. <laughs> I see on LinkedIn all the time. You're probably one of the most <laughs> common people on my feed. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dan. This is such a fun conversation, even pre-recording. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 